640 Toronto presents Think Tank. The breaking stories you care about. Facts and opinions that get you through the day. Now, let's meet the guests. Let's do that. We get to all the hot button issues on Think Tank. We run it uninterrupted from 7.30 to 8. And I'm going to make sure because I think so much of our esteemed guests, they don't want to just talk about whether the uh, the Durham school buses should be running this morning just because they're not running in the afternoon that they should be running this morning. This close to the stress of high school exams. They don't want to hear it. Chloe Brown joins us now. She's closer to uh, having the stress of high school exams in January uh, than either myself or, or my other guest. Chloe, it's great to have you on this morning. You're generous, Greg. <laughs> Remember that. Why didn't they, Why couldn't we get exams done by Christmas? Why couldn't teachers pack enough in so we could actually enjoy our Christmas holidays in grades 9 through 12 or 13 or OAC or whatever? Why not? Because my care has happened, Greg. Oh, my gosh. She's going <laughs> to. Oh, my goodness. I don't think I don't know if that's all Mike Harris. I think there were premiers before. As Steve Pakin, a uh, historian amongst uh, historians, would tell us many a premier had uh, exams scheduled in. Uh, Je- Steve, when you run for premier, move the high school exams to no later than December 22nd. Could you do that for uh, for society? You know, the the subordinate clause of that sentence was so right. bad, I'm not even going to comment on it, okay? Okay. Just so bad. Okay. But but we're putting a lot more cars on the road in Durham Region this morning uh, when we could actually have just a school bus. Parents are going to be frantically slamming into each other from behind, fender benders all over the place. It's great for the insurance industry. Um, anyway. And it's all Mike Harris's fault. I yeah, know. I think so. I, I think so. Or Doug Ford. So whoever the sitting premier is at the time, if it happened six years ago, it's Kathleen Wynn's fault. I think that's all fair to say. All right, let's get to property taxes in the city. Um, I think we're seeing this definitively kind of the pump being primed here for a big increase. Shelly Carroll over the weekend described the tax increase coming as substantial. Chloe Brown, let's start with you. Mayoral candidate, you did great in the election this past spring. I spoke to a counselor last night who floated a number. This is a tough one. People are going to swallow their Cheerios down the wrong uh, hatch. 11.3% doesn't mean that's the number we're getting. That just that might be the tall end of, of, of the stick, and we may get somewhere a couple percentage points lower. But we're getting hit in the city of Toronto. How do we keep people living here with this kind of tax increase? I'd like to see that apply to vacant properties and land first before it's applied to occupied land and buildings. Mm-hmm. Because at 3%, vacant properties are really not feeling the type of hurt that they should be in a time where there's a housing crisis. And honestly, in the, in the pursuit of fairness, it just doesn't make sense to me that we keep eating taxes that should be applied to people that are really like keeping us in this crisis. So yeah, if this is supposed to happen, put it on the vacant land and properties first before you're putting it on us who are actually paying into making the city work. There's so much about housing that's there, Steve, isn't there? Olivia Chow ran a campaign, and I remember the commercial on our radio station. Toronto just isn't affordable anymore. Um, This kind of tax increase, whether we were due for it or not, is going to make it far less affordable than far more affordable for people to stay here when they're already struggling with bills that are bigger all across the board. Well, I do like to take politicians at their word unless they can prove to me that they're proven liars. And we do remember back in the election campaign, the by-election campaign, Mm -hmm. that Olivia Chow would not give a number. And she said, I can't give you a number on how high the tax increase will be because I don't know how much the province will contribute to our problems and how much the federal government will make a contribution to help us alleviate our problems as well. And we still don't know what the federal number might be. And therefore, 
Everything that we're talking about here is all speculation. It is also a tried, tested, and true event, Greg, that when politicians have tough news to deliver, they often send trial balloons up that suggest that the news is going to be even more awful than you can imagine. So if somebody said to you, 11.3% is coming and hold your horses, you know, maybe, or maybe the situation is going to be not that bad so that when we finally do get the tax bill and however it comes out and whoever has to pay for it, uh, maybe it won't be anything close to 11.3% and, and we'll feel like we caught a break. So we can't make any judgments on this yet, I don't think. Yeah. Is that is that interesting? Could that be, Chloe, um, some political strategy here to send Shelley Carroll out? She does kind of a she didn't may really make the rounds. It was just kind of an offhand comment to a CBC reporter and mentioned that the tax hike would be substantial. Um, is this the? I don't know yet if this is the kind of administration with Olivia Chow. Uh, you watched her so closely for those two, three months campaigning that um, this is somebody that would walk it back if she thought there was a lot of public outcry about this, because as Steve mentioned, every candidate was pressing her to give give a number back in the spring when she was leading in the polls. Well, social media is a political tactic. If you really want to just a free survey now, you just put out something controversial and you see the reaction and you get the numbers in the back end. So, yeah, I think this is a pretty interesting tactic that they're using to see if the public has appetite for it and also like what other programs that the city would sorry Mm -hmm. would be okay with but honestly i i feel like it's time for olivia to put her cards down you can play coy during the debates but it's crunch time show us what you're going to do because time is ticking i see 2026 on the horizon and it's just like i'm ready for us to actually go to work versus talking about work I hear that. Um, Can I put another fact on the table here, Greg? People who who live in the 416 do not want to hear this, but it is an empirically provable fact. The the property tax rates in the city of Toronto are disproportionately lower than they are in all of the 905 areas around the city of Toronto uh, because many of the market value assessments have been done years and years and years ago, whereas the newer suburbs, uh, the rates are, are more recently arrived at. And as a result... Trontonians, I know you don't want to hear this, but you have been getting, relative to the ridings around Toronto, you've been getting a disproportionate break on the amount of property taxes you pay, and that might lead some politicians to believe that there's more room there to raise those rates. I just put that out there for the heck of it. Well, no, but I think it's accurate. Like Niagara Falls, um, though the average home price is is closer to you know eight hundred thousand dollars, the property tax rate is substantially higher. Mississauga and Brampton uh, just went up by four point five percent, but it was already to your point, Steve, a high rate. I think Niagara Region is the biggest increase I've seen, and that's at seven point zero four. Again, anywhere we get to eight and a half or nine is going to feel like sticker shock. But to your point, it doesn't put it this way. It doesn't help new buyers or recent buyers to tell them, hey, the people before you with uh, most of John Tory, all of Rob Ford and all of David Miller, they got a real break compared to you. Nobody feels good about hearing that. Admittedly true. Yeah. Um, let's get to the, the leadership aspect here as well. Um, there was a lot of debate yesterday and had we had you both on yesterday, there would have been um, it would have felt a lot more raw. Uh, two things that happened over the week was the police, obviously, with their coffee delivery to protesters uh, at 401 and Avenue Road. And then 
there were quite the scenes at the skating party at Nathan Phillips Square. Steve, I know you tweeted about uh, the origins of, of Nathan Phillips, and I was actually learning something as well there. Um, but are we needing, Chloe, let me start with you. Are we needing more leadership from politicians and police here, no matter where anyone stands on the Israel-Hamas conflict, no matter where anyone stands on the right to democratically protest and be heard, uh, it just feels like nobody quite knows what the rules uh, are and what's acceptable and what isn't anymore. Well, after seeing the content from Gaza, it really makes it hard to. uh, I really feel like people are desperate. I haven't seen... As someone who's grown up with the war on terror, seeing bin Laden, um, Saddam Hussein, even Gaddafi being captured, I haven't seen anything like this in my life. And I just really want our government officials to answer instead of playing lukewarm in the public eye. Right now, I haven't seen so many young people under the age of 25 be involved in in trying to move a political conflict since like the war on terror in 2001. So honestly, like I just see this event as our Vietnam War as North American kids, and we're desperate as conscientious objectors to move the needle and politicians need to act versus just sending police. I think that's really interesting that you say that, and I want to follow up as to why you think, and I'll bring this up, there were two two clear examples of ethnic cleansing and genocide when I was in university. One was the war in Bosnia, between 92 and 95 with Croats and Bosnians for Bosnians uh, Bosnians forced to flee rather and obviously what we saw in uh, in Darfur um so I saw both of those in the mid 90s but you're not wrong we weren't out in the streets protesting and I'd be quick at times to change the channel and think I've had enough of the war in Bosnia I've had enough of this African genocide why is it grabbing so many people under the age of 30 let's say because on social media I, I'm watching People give their last words and then seeing news reports of them being killed. Mm-hmm. It's that rapid. I've never been able to connect with people that are dying in real time. And this is like me reading Anne Frank's diary and seeing like seeing Anne being killed. I don't know how else to describe the type of madness that we're enduring as a generation, watching people give their last testament before they're bombed. And that has never been available before. Smartphones are really changing the way that we document war, genocide. It's and it's something that's disturbing me, if I have to be honest, because it's like, how do we as a how do we as adults like even talk to our kids about this? I have a niece and nephew. And it's like, how do I explain to them kids their age are losing their legs because because of a belief that one group deserves a state after a genocide that happened so many years ago. This would be like me as a descendant of Africans going into Nigeria or Ghana and demanding land because of what happened. It doesn't make sense anymore. And in order to get sense back into like my reality, like I have to protest for the government to do something because this is madness. Steve, how do you view it? Well, this Chloe, I take your point. I really do. But that answer does ignore half of the history here. And half of the history here is that in 1947, the United Nations agreed to partition that land so that two peoples could get two states. One side took them up on it. One side didn't take them up on it. And the poor Palestinian people have been paying for that decision ever since. 
Um, here's part of the problem here. Part of the problem is you have to ask yourself, I know there are people who are concerned about what's happening with these protests and what we saw at Nathan Phillips Square on the weekend uh, was concerning. But I, Greg, I think you have to ask yourself, how deeply do you want politicians to show, quote unquote, leadership in this situation Mm -hmm. uh, by by snuggling up to the line, which so far has been pretty firm, that the politicians will not direct the police on what to do. We've had a tradition in this province that the politicians set the broad parameters on what they want their police to do, but operational decisions are left up to the police, and that way nobody can be accused of political interference. Lest I remind everybody here, one of the most and this is an allegation uh, very much uh, unsubstantiated uh, by the man himself, but, but, but testified to by others who were in the room. You know, there was a moment 30 years ago when Mike Harris is alleged to have said, I want those effing Indians out of the park. Right. And he was talking about the protests at Ipperwash in, in uh, southwestern Ontario. So uh, everybody agreed we don't want that. And- oh, I agree. I agree with Steve. I don't want uh, the politicians to show leadership through the police. I want them to show leadership at the UN and doing their political work in the international community. The police are, they should continue doing their independent work. (laughs) But Chloe, let me ask, when you see what happened Sunday at this skating incident, do you say you laid out, you laid out an important cause, you laid out an important belief and an opinion, and it's, it's got nuance and substance. That's why I like talking to people like you and Steve, because it's, you don't see things through a vacuum, but when you see what happens, do you go, you idiots are going to make, are are taking the attention away from the actual cause. No one's at the Israeli consulate. We're not putting pressure on politicians to take their arguments to, to Bob Ray or to a higher level. It's just, it, it, it looks like buffoonery when you got guys going out on the ice and screaming at 75 year old skating. Do I have a point on that? Yes, but you have to consider these are very young activists. They are not necessarily, they're not necessarily civically literate. And that's something that I was trying to press during the election. A lot mm-hmm. of us are adults that are not civically literate. I had to buy my education in policy at the cost of $20,000. <laughs> you know what I mean? To mm-hmm. be able to get on that stage. And this is where there needs to be better leadership in communities, in politics, from people like myself to educate the public on who to go to. And this is why it's important for this conversation to happen, because they don't know any better until someone like myself gets involved and says, hey, you should be actually here. But let's say you're mayor of Toronto and that happens to you on Sunday. And Olivia stopped speaking briefly and said, hey, I agree. And they don't want to hear it like they don't. They're not there to me. They're not those people. there are not there for a discussion. They're not there for a debate. They're not there to go face to face and say, hey, I'd like you as a politician to do X, Y or Z. It just feels like mayhem and chaos. Like if it's Mayor Chloe Brown, how do you handle that? I post instructions online because that's where they live. A lot of these Mm. young people, they read, they read my social media posts and that's where I would post those directions. And this is where Mm. the wall of communication needs to be expanded by politicians. People are confronting them in public because they're not answering their phones. They're ignoring their emails And that's why people are now physically confronting them, because a lot of politicians, they forget after winning popularity, governance is the hard part. So, yeah, Yeah, you're not wrong there. Yeah. Go ahead, Steve. There's two other 
Sorry, Greg, there's two other things going on here. And, and one is, uh, and I'm sorry to put it this way, because uh, I, I don't actually see anti-Semites under every overturned rock. But the fact of the matter is there's always been a double standard on Israel. And, and surprise, surprise, um, it, it's happening here, too. You pointed out there weren't demonstrations in the streets every day about Bosnia or about Darfur. Uh, there are about this, and in part it's because it's a double standard. Uh, whenever Israel does something wrong, uh, the whole world notices. When other countries do something wrong, very few countries notice. The other thing is, why are so many young people involved in this? I think part of it is they go to college or university and they get sucked into that vortex of, you know, of a new interpretation of history which portrays Israel as a colonial power and 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 just like all the other colonial powers in the past which completely ignores how the state was created in the first place and, 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 and the notion that this quote-unquote colonial power is surrounded by 350 million Arabs, all of whose countries have ejected all of the Jews who lived for mm. centuries in those Arab countries. Nobody talks about any aspect of that either. So it, it, there's a lot more nuance and a lot more complexity to this situation than unfortunately simply a minute and a half TikTok videos are able to convey, and yet that's the world we live in right now. So it's a bit frustrating. No, and and even the segment we're doing, like it's it's uninterrupted talk, and here's I think three relatively. Uh, I'm honored if I include myself as being somewhat as smart as you two, but yeah, like like we've got a Uyghur genocide that is clear ethnic cleansing orchestrated by the Chinese government. Have I stopped for a second to think I should attend a protest or have I checked for a second to check a label of a clothing item or a furniture item to see if it's made? And I haven't. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's that's kind of shameful of me not to do a little bit more to Chloe's point about something. If I'm going to say, hey, I'm active and I'm I'm awake, if you will, if I use that word. I'm not showing it. I'm talking it, but I'm not showing it sometimes, Chloe. Well, but, but that's okay. You're... Sorry, go uh, ahead, Chloe. Yeah, let's go with you and then Steve. I would extend a little grace to you because you didn't have the same technology and knowledge that I have at my fingertips right now. Like, I grew up with a lot of technology and the ability to build tools through that technology to be able to get to this point of knowledge. So it's not your fault. It's just there needs to be better intergenerational conversations about what it is that we're trying to do for democracy. And that is, that is something I'm, as a, like a policy analyst, I'm trying to figure out, like, what is the future of democracy? Because we do live in a very capitalistic, profit-driven world, and we don't have to think about those things. Now that we are, what tools are we going to use to verify and validate information? Chloe, do t are two things true in your mind? Do you see everything you laid out about Israel's proportionality, everything you believe about what's happening in Gaza, but do you see the anti-Semitism on our streets and in our in our in our airspace right now that Steve sees? Yes, absolutely. Because there is a lack of civic education available. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people understand how political groups apply strategic tactics or strategy as a whole to developing worlds. And as someone who works in policy, very few people understand my role in affecting those changes because we are a faceless bureaucracy. We are not meant to be seen. Politicians are the face of my ideas 
and a bunch of ideas that happen in an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So there is a need to increase civic engagement through education, but that takes time. And Steve, as you see right now, like Israel's getting ready to defend itself in The Hague. This is something I didn't think would transpire after three and a half months. South Africa's charged them with genocide. Um, that this again, the, the words getting used by people all over the world, whether people agree with it or not, it's a legal concept. Um, and, uh, and, and we're in that scenario right now, aren't we, where you probably see the, the arguments always been there and recently been there about Netanyahu and proportionality and response. Um, and, and it's something Israelis argue about on a regular, and Jewish people argue about on a regular basis, don't they? Is the leader, the right leader for the right moment? And a lot of people are looking at this going with, with BB going wrong guy, wrong time, wrong year, wrong circumstance. And, and it, it blows everything up. No pun intended. Well, there is a joking comment often made in the Jewish community, which is if you've got two Jews, you've got three opinions. And, and, and the reason is that because Israel is one of the most dynamic societies around where, where people are not all obviously of one opinion on this issue. There are multiple opinions, and, and th there is no more vigorous debate about what Israel ought to be doing right now. Uh, no, not in the streets of Toronto, not in the streets of Europe, but in Israel. That's where the biggest debates about this are taking place. Uh, has Israel's response, just to pick up on your last point, mm -hmm. been disproportionate? Uh, yeah, of course it has. And that has been Israeli policy for 75 years. And, and the disproportionate response has mm -hmm. always, and look, at, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to defend or overly criticize Israel here. I'm merely making a point about its historical approach to these issues, which is Israel has always taken a disproportionate approach to responding when it is attacked, and that has, that has been, in Israel's view, the way to make progress, to keep peace. And the fact of the matter is it's got peace treaties with almost all of its neighbors now because of the, you could argue, because of that yeah. approach, and that's why they're doing it here. Let's move uh, to something quite different, and let's talk about Tiger Woods. I'm eager to know about where you're at. Tiger Woods and Nike end their relationship. Um, impossible to explain, I think, to somebody who landed from another planet, Chloe, how many people he brought to golf, how that perception changed. I'd even argue it's made, this, it's made the sport less white. It's made the sport less elite. It's got its bad history. Believe me, I know that. Um, how will Tiger Woods be remembered amidst all the other stuff? There's the golf Tiger Woods, and then there's sort of the personal gossip Tiger Woods when the car accident happened and all the other stuff. How, how does he get remembered? Tiger Woods will be remembered fondly. He brought my dad to golf. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Round Golf because of Tiger Woods. And I am grateful because it gives him something to do. <laughs> and honestly, um, it's one of those things where I see his kids, Tiger's kids now, and there's such a bigger brand opportunity in them than staying with Nike. Yeah, I, I I think that's so well uh, that's so well put. Given uh, that it looks like Charlie's going to play, and and maybe uh, it's tough to be as good as the old man, but that's the case with many of our dads. Steve, how do you view it? A truly historic figure. You cannot deny him the impact that he had on the sport internet or the game internationally. Uh, I remember when I was a kid growing up, uh, I did watch quite a bit of golf actually as a young kid, and there were you know every player of significance back in the day mm. was the same. They were basically all white men. And Tiger Woods gave young black people uh, the potential that this game could belong to them as well. And yes, he had, you know, off the green, off the course difficulties as so many famous people do have. 
Uh, but his legacy to the sport can't be taken away from him. Yeah, my dad and I always cheered for Calvin Pete. You remember him? He'd he'd make I a sure run in a major and once was, in a while, and he just it was Calvin Pete and Lee Elder, and that was about it. That was about it, and it's changed so much to become the international game it's been now. I gotta leave it there, guys. Thank you so much. One of my favorites in uh, recent memory uh, for where the conversation went, and uh, really, really love having you both on. Thanks so much for the time. Take care. Thank you too. There's Chloe Brown, uh, and there's uh, Steve Pakin.